0: Hello and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm Logan Finney. The growing needs of Idaho's criminal justice system have concerned policymakers and legislators in recent years, as the state has relied on out of state placements and other measures and has now taken steps to build a new women's prison and reallocate some of those correction resources. But criminal justice is about more than just bed space. Joining me this week to discuss the process of returning to the community when someone exits the state's criminal justice system are Lauren Bailey and Mackenzie Moss, who are analysts with the Idaho Legislature's Office of Performance Evaluations. Lauren, Mackenzie, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Yes.
0: So lawmakers charged OPE, the Office of Performance Evaluations, with studying the end-to-end effectiveness of Idaho's criminal justice system. Uh, This report that you guys authored focuses on re-entry. Could you give me some of the high-level takeaways here? Lauren, let's uh, let's start with you.
1: Sure. Um, In March of 2021, we were directed by the Joint Legislative Oversight Committee to evaluate uh, criminal justice efforts in Idaho, and it was kind of a, a broad request. Um, and we met with stakeholders, including the original study requesters, and decided to approach this in two phases. And the first phase was uh, focused on reentry, which is when individuals who are incarcerated uh, within Idaho's prison facilities re-enter the community. Um, but it's also a process, not just that that one event. So this first phase focused on reentry, and then the second phase will focus on um, prevention. What are ways that the state can help keep people from um, interacting with the criminal justice system or alternatives to incarceration? Um, are there things we could be doing that we're not to keep people out of prison once they have interacted with the system? And I would uh, say that the high level takeaways from this first phase are that we are doing things as a state to help prepare um, residents of prison facilities to reenter, but we don't have a clear picture of if our efforts are actually successful or not. And part of that is because we need some expanded metrics to understand if our efforts um, are having an impact in different areas. And historically, recidivism has been the metric that the state uses um, and and other states and the federal government. And there are some limitations to that 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 we can go into detail and discuss. But just using that metric alone, and recidivism is the return to incarceration after a previous incarceration, doesn't tell us if our programs are working and doesn't tell us where we need to focus our attention. So we think that the department uh, and the legislature have some opportunities for improvement um, and we make some recommendations in the report um, to address some of those those gaps. And also uh, we acknowledge that the department like every um, agency and organization has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And as part of that, um, they've had a a staffing crisis particularly with correction officers and have had a really difficult time uh, filling and keeping those positions. And that um, we heard um, and found that has a direct effect on the ability to not only administer reentry services, but also the ability for residents to get access to those services.
0: Absolutely, yeah, those are great overviews. Um, Mackenzie, did you have anything you wanted to add there?
2: As far as kind of what our main takeaways from the report were, I think that really covers it, um, the insufficient metrics as well as the limited capacity. Uh, Lauren talked a bit about the correction officer uh, staffing shortage uh, which is a huge one. And then we also did receive some um, feedback kind of throughout the process that there's other places within um, that reentry process that there might be limited capacity, uh, whether it be working with case managers or having enough resources in the community. Uh, definitely having the availability of resources, whether it be staff or those services, plays a large role in how successful someone's reentry can be.
0: Sure, and in terms of the staffing issues, of course, the shortage of correctional officers and parole officers is something we've covered here at Idaho Reports as well. Um, I'm curious about the methods for this study. Your office did a bunch of interviews with um, residents of the of the system and parolees and and um, other stakeholders who were involved. Can you tell me about some of that?
1: Yes. Uh, we wanted to approach this evaluation um, with a recognition that this is a vast system with many stakeholders. And one of the first steps was that we reached out to stakeholders across the community, across the state to kind of wrap our minds around what was happening, um, not just at the department level, but in the communities. And we realized we wanted to do further interviews uh, with individuals who had actually experienced incarceration and reentry. entry so, we requested a large data set from the Department of Corrections. And from that data set, we were able to look at everyone during a certain time period from, I believe, 2016 through uh, 2021, who had exited the Department of Corrections custody to parole. We had kind of specifically narrowed down parole as our focus. And then we created a sample uh, from that population Of 500 individuals who we had the email contact information for, and we independently reached out to them and asked them if they would participate in interviews. From that sample, uh, we interviewed 53 individuals who either were currently on parole or formerly on parole. And definitely want to give a shout out to St. Vincent de Paul Reentry Services, who um, we worked with. During this evaluation, as a stakeholder, but they offered their office space um, as a neutral location for us to meet with people on parole um, in a comfortable environment that that wasn't, you know, a, a state building. <laughs> so we really appreciate their assistance. And the interviews took over a month. Um, we spread them out, and we, I would, I would say. It was one of the most incredible experiences that I've ever had um, as, as a human being, but also particularly as an evaluator. Uh, we had created a specific guide of questions that we asked every individual and the interviews lasted about an hour. And people were um, extremely willing to share with us. And we heard a lot of really heartbreaking stories, um, but we also heard a lot of really wonderful, positive things that, that came out of those interviews.
0: That's very cool. As a a journalist, I'm jealous that you guys were able to spend that much time and talk to that many people to get such a comprehensive look at this. Um, So let's talk about some of the findings from this study. Uh, We've kind of touched on, there's uh, the report characterized as insufficient metrics. Uh, Kind of the big one we talk about is recidivism, which we said is when people get out of the system, how often they end up back in the system the report characterizes that as an insufficient metric, that it's not enough to get a full picture. But can you tell me about Idaho, specifically Idaho's recidivism rate and what we are able to learn from it?
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Just to clarify, um, recidivism is the return to criminal behavior um, after incarceration, and it can be defined any number of ways. It could be um, rearrest, it could be uh, reconviction, it could be reincarceration at the state level. And for our purposes, um, the Department of Correction, when they're reporting to the legislature, define that as uh, reincarceration. And part of that is just our, our ability to access data at different levels of government. And it's the rate, when we talk about recidivism rate, it's the rate that um, not an individual, but a group of people return to uh, reincarceration. And the way that we assess that in Idaho, the way that the department um, has determined that is a cohort method. So they look at everyone that leaves uh, an IDOC facility in one year, the the year they leave, and then they measure it out at one year intervals and three year. So at three years, uh, how many, what is the rate of um, that population? How many have returned to prison? And what we know is that we've had pretty high recidivism rates in Idaho, depending on if you're looking at subgroups of that, anywhere from 30 to over 40% recidivism rate. We were looking in this study specifically at individuals who exit uh, with They've had term sentences, so they're not on probation. They weren't part of what's called the writer program, retained jurisdiction. And we found that the rate has increased. So we looked at cohorts starting with um, 2016 is the actual year, 2017 and 2018. And the rate increased over those three years. People who exited prison in 2018, 37% of that population for both men and women ended up back in prison within three years. What we don't know is why. <laughs> and that is the, the kind of the failure of recidivism as a metric, that it doesn't explain to us um, what happened, why they got in trouble again, with the law, or were reconvicted and ended up back in prison, and it doesn't help the state understand where resources need to be focused.
0: Yeah, tell me, tell me about that. So, if recidivism isn't giving us the whole picture, you know that that rate of thirty to forty percent—that means you know one in three people is ending up with something else happening to them after they're ostensibly done with their sentence. Um, what? what could we be measuring that could help us better figure out why that recidivism rate is so high and and where the system isn't working?
1: Yeah. So in our research, um, a study we came across that actually came out uh, just this last November, there was um, a report done by the National Academy of Sciences called the limits of recidivism measuring success after prison. And they had, um, conducted a large consensus study with experts across many fields to try to understand if recidivism isn't the metric that helps us what do we need to be looking at and they came away with some recommendations that we um, incorporated into our report to look at what they call the key domains of successful reintegration and those look at overall well-being overall health uh, the mental health of individuals, substance use, the individual's engagement in healthcare, housing and homelessness, employment and job retention, educational attainment, social relationships, civic engagement, um, and what is referred to as criminal desistance, which is uh, stopping criminal behavior. And then as part of the, that recommendation of these key domains, They offer a lot of uh, examples of different measurement tools, some validated, some not quite validated yet, that could be incorporated to try and get a better understanding of where we're seeing issues. So is it because of um, lack of access to healthcare Are individuals ending up back in the system because they're not reintegrating with their family and their community in both social ways and in family connection ways and, and so the goal would be to look at all those domains and over time collect data on them and try to understand where we're experiencing gaps as a state.
0: So in terms of all of these compounding factors that affect whether a person reoffends or uh, falls into that recidivism uh, rate, the state does have some programs in place to help with this reentry process. Um, Mackenzie, can you tell me about some of the programs that the state is doing and whether we know they're having an effect?
2: Yes, um, good question. So I'll kind of answer in two ways. Um, So you asked what programs the state currently offers um, to folks that are in prison getting ready to reenter. And the word programs is one we thought a lot about as we put together this evaluation. Um, And the way that we use the word programs in our report actually refers to uh, evidence-based programs or potentially evidence-based programs that uh, the department um, uses to, and then the parole commission then uses to determine if someone should be released to parole. Um, So they're required programs, one could say, in order for someone to be released onto parole. Uh, Then there are other types of resources or services that someone might have access to in prison that you could use the word program to describe, um, but aren't those evidence-based required programs. Um, So maybe I'll talk about those first, and then we can transition into the evidence-based programs, which was a big focus of our evaluation. Um, But beyond those evidence-based programs, there's some other resources that folks might have access to. Uh, They might have access to education programs. So that might be something like a GED, um, or even more remedial education before that. Uh, or more advanced education like a higher education education course. Um, and we found that those were available dependent on um, the resources at each facility. so how many staff there were, uh, and if the connections were there to provide those services. Um, and nationally, it is shown that as folks participate in education courses that has that does reduce the likelihood that someone um, would recidivate. The the, um, department also offers what's called a pre-release course, which is a type of education um, where folks might learn life skills uh, and a range of kind of other um, things that would prepare them to re-enter. We did a little bit of digging into the department's pre-release course and we made some recommendations in our report about how um, there might be some better measurement to determine if that course is effective. Uh, Right now, we're not sure if that pre-release class is effective um, with those life skills. And then the other opportunity that someone might have access to could be a work opportunity. That could be within a facility, um, ranging all the way up to being able to leave the facility to work in the community. And we talk about that in our evaluation. We did uh, a look. We did look at how much money someone might make in each of those different ranges, and um, do some analysis on how much folks had saved when they reentered based on those different opportunities, uh, because we heard a lot about how having. Um, money in the bank and a little bit, you know, of grounding as you got out might be useful in being able to secure housing, to pay off debts um, that you might owe, to pay off things like restitution. Um, And that is another kind of program, work program that someone might have access to.
0: So those are the types of things that are resources, that are things that are offered to people who are getting out of the system. Lauren, can you tell me about the required programs and whether we know if those are working or not?
1: Yeah, so we don't know. (laughs) The department offers some core behavioral intervention programs, and they are rooted in what we call evidence-based practices, but they're not necessarily proven uh, to be effective or rated by the National Institute of Justice as effective programs. So as we were interviewing uh, program facilitators, at the department, we also conducted a survey of department staff, um, and then we spoke with former participants in these behavioral intervention programs. We heard a lot of mixed feedback. In some cases, we heard positive things that um, this is better than what the department was doing prior to 2016, and that. This is a more formalized program. It's consistent across facilities. They're able to offer these classes to more individuals um, and and kind of get people through the the classes faster than they may have in the past. Um, But then on on the other side of that, we heard that the classes tend to be um, very repetitive, that especially individuals who have gone in and out of the system and are not taking the classes multiple times um, over different stays find them very repetitive and rudimentary and we heard from the facilitators of the programs that they are not necessarily as enjoyable to teach because they're it's not as enjoyable for them to teach these programs that were implemented um, starting in 2016 because they're More formal, there's less opportunity to engage with personal stories and they're supposed to follow a a more structured curriculum. But there's a reason for that, and that is because the structure is important for program fidelity and for us understanding if the programs are working. The department has issued a program effectiveness report every two years um, since 2016 and they're inconclusive. And when we were digging into this even more, recidivism has kind of been that that metric of, is it successful or not? And the numbers have gone the wrong direction. They've increased. But we we don't really understand if that's because the program itself is not effective or if it's not being implemented with fidelity. And so one of our recommendations to the department was that we want them to prioritize pre and post-program testing to try and get a better understanding if individual participants are receiving a benefit from these behavioral intervention programs.
0: Okay. One other detail I wanted to ask about that I found interesting as I was leafing through the report um, was a, a section that had to do with person-centered language. with. Um, being intentional about not referring to people as criminals or as inmates or as you know insert your noun here, but referring to uh, people and to referring to folks as residents and clients. Um, um, can you tell me the actual, at least anecdotal effect that that seems to have on people and how how uh, impactful these programs are for them?
1: That that shift in language, I think that's something that that the department might be able to speak better to. It was a Certainly a decision they made starting in 2022 to be more intentional with language shifts. And you'll see across their website and they're updating all their documents to reflect those um, changes. So we don't say inmate anymore or criminal. Mm
0: -hmm. We say
1: resident, um, if they're a resident of the facility. We don't say parolee. We say client, they're a client of the parole office, and we heard from staff with the Department of Correction that they appreciate this change, that um, it's improved their connection and relationships with their clients and with residents. And we heard from individuals that we interviewed with lived experience that they did feel like it treated them like a human being, that the recognition that their crime is not who they are and that the labeling didn't necessarily help in their progress um, towards becoming a better person and releasing from prison. Um, and we, we heard some some really wonderful comments from from men and women who appreciate this change and recognize that the department is, is making this change. And one quote in particular I'll read from the report was from an interview with a resident, a former resident, who said that when you feel like a human being, you act like one. And they really appreciated uh, the efforts the department was making.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to um, jump in and kind of second all of that and add uh, that another word um, that we heard a lot that was being moved away from was offender. And I can remember quite a few um, interviews where folks talked about that language uh, not sitting right with them or not um, not being helpful to their process or their experience um, in you know and we heard that across a lot of different people uh so it was really interesting to kind of hear that the language that was being used really did have an effect on how they saw themselves and kind of how they saw their experience within the cr- criminal justice system moving towards re-entering the community and we heard a lot of positive things about those shifts
0: yeah that's very interesting to hear i think kind of a kind of a feature of you guys being able to do these one-on-one interviews and hear people's actual lived experience with the system. Some of the past attempts that the state has made, like the justice reinvestment efforts, um, only showed temporary successes for for the effort that was put in. And of course, lawmakers are concerned about the growth of both correction services and the correction budget. Um, what are some options or some recommendations that policymakers could look at uh, to ease the need for these services and um, better, better support long-term success in in improving the criminal justice system
1: in this evaluation um, it wasn't necessarily a finding we, we weren't necessarily looking at cost or cost containment we weren't able to assess what it even costs to administer these programs uh, because they don't measure it on a per participant level um, and the interesting part about Correction officer staffing shortage is that um, the department is working very hard to fix this problem. It's been going on for the last couple of years, and they have increased starting pay, but so has everyone else. And they're in a, a you know a difficult competition there to attract and retain staff. And it's I don't think it's um, our offices role in this evaluation to say, this is how much more money you might need or how um, many positions the department is the one best suited to to assess that. Um, but we certainly wanted legislators to be aware that there are real implications of this staffing crisis, that the way that it affects reentry.
2: Another kind of main finding of our evaluation had to do with those metrics of success, um, and talked a lot about what we do and don't know about um, what is effective in terms of reentry. And it, you know, as Lauren mentioned, um, we weren't able to. Uh, discover really the information is not available uh, to know how much those programs cost on a per participant or per program basis so that would be useful information to know Um, but also dialing in what those metrics are that can help us determine what is and is not a successful intervention is all kind of needed information in that discussion of cost effectiveness. Um, and so I think that we kind of pointed to some places where uh, focus could be to give us better information to have those discussions and by us I mean the legislature and the department um, as they move forward and really asking for the resources that are needed or determining what resources are needed.
0: One of the report highlights that's featured is that the Department of Corrections plays a critical role in preparing people for reentry supervising clients in the community and connecting clients to resources. However, the department cannot be the sole re-entry support for people returning to the community. Uh, tell me about that big picture finding and tell me who else needs to be involved in this process.
1: Well, <clears throat> the, you know, the criminal justice system, as I mentioned, earlier is this enormous entity with all of these different stakeholders and the department has a, a definite role in preparing people for reentry, in supporting that transition, and in supervising them in the community. And as part of that role of supervision, parole officers connect their clients to resources, may recommend specific treatment, um, mm-hmm. but at the community level, if there are not enough resources, if there are not enough um, inpatient beds uh, for substance use treatment or mental health holds, if there's not enough community providers to assist with housing or jobs or clothing, if there aren't enough of those services at the community level, then anything that the department does, um, it's difficult to judge them by that. And there's this this other part of the system. I think that uh, the state, the legislature, has an interesting role in in this arena and that there are some things that um, they can certainly help with, but there are other things that really are more at a local level, Um, but it's important in the big picture of reentry, to to recognize that there are other stakeholders besides the Department of Correction.
0: Okay, great. Well, I've got one more question for the two of you before I let you go. Uh, this phase of the study focused on reentry, which is the the coming out of the ju- criminal justice system. Um, part two of the study is going to be coming up, focusing on the the entry part of that equation. Or. Uh, possibly diversions, other things than incarceration. Can you give me a preview of where you're at in that process? And when you expect that study, the second phase to come out?
1: Yeah, Uh, the second phase is currently
0: on pause, um,
1: but I can kind of give you a preview of where we see it going. And that's um, to look specifically at those alternatives to incarceration that Either the state is currently implementing or other states um, might have some ideas that, that could work in Idaho. One of the things that Idaho does is uh, treatment courts um, to help keep people from incarceration when they have a either a substance use or a mental health issue that could be treated through an intensive treatment court. So we'll certainly be looking at what we've been doing, and if there are opportunities to to try some different things. Looking at prevention is a broad area that could be anything from primary prevention, which starts when people are very young, to uh, juvenile justice, and prevention that happens in that age group, um, to things that can happen for adults that help prevent them from interacting with law enforcement. So we're looking forward to phase two, but it's going to be a
0: All right. Lauren Bailey and Mackenzie Moss with the Idaho Legislature's Office of Performance Evaluations. Thanks so much for spending your time with us today.
1: Thank you, Logan. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go. While you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms, and remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.